This is HPR episode 2705 entitled Evidence-Based Medicine and is part of the series Health and Healthcare. It is hosted by Ahuka and is about 17 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is Medicine should be based on objective scientific evidence. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. This is Ahuka welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another exciting episode in our series on taking care of your health. And we're looking at something today that is called evidence-based medicine. Now, that may be something that you hadn't heard of before, or maybe you assume all medicine is evidence-based. Well, ideally it would be. Uh, But, you know, doctors are people. Um, Having worked at hospitals, um, I can tell you, as a demonstrable fact, some doctors are older. They've been doing things a certain way for a long time, and they're not going to change. And believe me, no one can resist change any better than a doctor. Um, And, you know, other times it's like, well, what what do other people do? All right. So what we're talking about when we say evidence-based medicine is, say, take a look at the best scientific research that is available. Okay, That's the idea behind evidence-based medicine. Now, I've put a number of links in the show notes. Um, there is a Wikipedia article and one from the National Institute of Health. Uh, They're saying basically the same thing, but I think the Wikipedia definition is a little easier to follow, and I'm going to read from it. Evidence-based medicine is an approach to medical practice intended to optimize decision-making by emphasizing the use of evidence from well-designed and well-conducted research. Okay, right away, (laughs) well-designed and well-conducted and isn't what we've been doing over the last couple of episodes trying to get at some of the parameters of that. And it goes on to say, although all medicine is uh, all medicine based on science has some degree of empirical support, evidence-based medicine goes further, classifying evidence by its epistemologic strength and requiring that only the strongest types coming from meta-analyses, systematic reviews, and randomized controlled trials can yield strong recommendations. Weaker types, such as from case control studies, can yield only weak recommendations. The term was originally used to describe an approach to teaching the practice of medicine and improving decisions by individual physicians about individual patients. 
use of the term rapidly expanded to include a previously described approach that emphasized the use of evidence in the design of guidelines and policies that apply to groups of patients and populations, evidence-based practice policies. It is subsequently spread to describe an approach to decision-making that is used at virtually every level of healthcare as well as other fields, evidence-based practice. Whether applied to medical education, decisions about individuals, guidelines and policies applied to populations, or administration of health services in general, evidence-based medicine advocates that to the greatest extent possible, decisions and policies should be based on evidence, not just the beliefs of practitioners, experts, or administrators. It thus tries to assure that a clinician's opinion, which may be limited by knowledge gaps or biases, is supplemented with all available knowledge from the scientific literature so that best practice can be determined and applied. It promotes the use of formal, explicit methods to analyze evidence and makes it available to decision makers. It promotes programs to teach the methods to medical students, practitioners, and policymakers. Well, that was rather a lot, but there's a lot in there. Okay, it, it's probably going to take us more than one uh, bite at the apple to unpack all of this stuff. But the important thing is that it is a rational approach to health. To start with, let's look at one passage near the end. It thus tries to assure that a clinician's opinion, which may be limited by knowledge gaps or biases, is supplemented with all available knowledge from the scientific literature so that best practice can be determined and applied. It promotes the use of formal, explicit methods to analyze evidence and makes it available to decision makers. Now, this means that anyone who is concerned, but most particularly physicians, needs to understand what the studies show and be able to evaluate those studies. And that's why we've taken some time already, and we'll take more, to get at how studies are done and the strengths and weaknesses of each of the different approaches. Now, what we have to understand is that studies are not all equal. Right? You may read a news story or hear a story on television that says, a new study just came out that may change how you eat. Or maybe it'll be about a new hope for cancer sufferers. What you generally will not hear is any discussion of the quality of the study, which is a guide to how much you should believe it. Of course, as we have already pointed out, until the study has been replicated and validated by additional research, you should adopt a wait-and-see attitude. And of course, there is the rule advanced by Carl Sagan that says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, what are the characteristics of good studies? Well, randomized controlled trials. Let's start with that. That's one of the ones mentioned in the definition that we read earlier uh, as being strong. So a good study is one that is randomized and controlled, which aims to eliminate any potential bias. That's what the randomization is all about. So how do you do this? You start by defining the population of interest. So, if you're testing a drug to fight malaria, your population would be all people who have malaria. 
Now, since the major incidence of malaria is in Africa, you would probably go there to do the study and select participants from the population there. The random part comes in how the participants are selected for this population. The statistician's definition of a random sample is one where every member of the population being studied has an equal chance of being selected. Everyone has an equal chance. Bias would occur if they were not equally likely to be selected. So, if your sample had only men, you would not have a randomized sample. This was a problem with a number of drug trials many decades back. We still have questions about adults versus children with a number of drugs that were never tested on children. Of course, the key is to define the population properly. If you are testing a treatment for ovarian cancer, for instance, then your sample really should just be women, <laughs> and that's perfectly proper. Uh, your sample matches your population. Now, controlled means you have a test group and a control group that the test group is compared to. Now, the ac allocation of participants to these groups should be perfectly random as well. So you'll start with a, a, a group randomly pulled out of the population, and then some go into the uh, test group and some go into the control group, and that divvying up is a totally random process. Now, there are a couple of ways you do this. If the study is what's called a placebo-controlled study, the control group will receive no active treatment, but in every respect should be treated precisely the same. If the test group gets a pill, the control group will get a pill as well, usually something harmless like a sugar pill. If the test group gets a shot, the control group will also get a shot, usually something like a harmless saline solution. You do this because of the well-documented placebo effect, which shows that people getting sugar pills and saline shots show signs of improvement. Even more interesting is the finding that even when people know they are getting a placebo, they tend to approve. You know, they'll get better anyway. The purpose of the placebo-controlled study is to make sure that the treatment is really doing something and not just making people feel better because they are getting care. Uh, now, this isn't the place to try and get at, you know, how does the placebo effect work? You know, there are mind-body connections, and they are all fascinating. Now, the other type of study is what's called a positive control study. Now, that's when there's already a recognized standard treatment, and you are looking at something that is a potential alternative. Maybe you think it's going to do better, uh, or you just want to have a you know another good treatment in your arsenal. So again, you need to randomly assign people to the test group and the control group to eliminate bias. And you're testing to see if there is a significant improvement using the new treatment compared to the existing treatment. If the new treatment is no better than what you already have, there may not be any point in using it. Now, I say may not. There, there could be. Uh, you know, there may be popul you know, part of the population that is not responding to 
the standard treatment that might respond to this, and you know, it, it's worth giving it a shot. But what you want to watch out for is uh, a well-known problem of a drug company with a drug that uh, they have been selling at a very high price because it's patent protected, and the patent is about to run out, as patents are supposed to do, you know. Um, and then at that point, um, anyone can produce the generic equivalent. And so the pharmaceutical company is going to try and come up with an alternative that they can patent and sell at a high price. But, you know, if it's really doing the same thing as the generic, it, 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 there's no, uh, no socially valid reason for doing that. So that's why you do that kind of positive control study. Now, if you really want a gold standard for a study, you combine randomized controlled methodology with something called double-blind. Now, in pretty much every randomized controlled trial, the participants do not know whether they are in the group receiving the treatment or in the control group. Now, if you stop there, it is single-blind. But it has long been known that researchers are human and may have a tendency to see results where there are none. There's the famous example of NRAIS, reported in 1903. This is a fascinating one, because at the time, scientists were discovering these things. X-rays had just been discovered. And so there was this whole thing about radioactivity and radiation and all of these things that physicists are discovering, and a researcher, a respected researcher, at the University of Nancy in France, uh, discovered this thing that he called N-rays, the N for Nancy, the university that he worked at. Um, and he reported all of this, you know, got a couple of other researchers to report it, and then a skeptic, <laughs> who was an American as it happens, uh, said, you know, I, I'm not so sure that the that the evidence is all that strong here, and went to visit this researcher at the University of Nancy. And uh, at some point, the researcher left the room, and this American basically took the test substance that was supposedly emitting N-rays and removed it from the apparatus and put in a block of wood instead well, then the researcher came back and started demonstrating these N-rays that he was supposedly seeing. You know, it, was, uh, it was all imaginary. Uh, probably a good example of what we've referred to before, confirmation bias, you know, that you, you tend to see what you want to see. So a double-blind study tries to solve this problem by carefully keeping the researchers in the blind about which person is in each group. All right, you've got your test group, you've got your control group. So you might assign every participant a number. Then you have one person prepare the pills or the shots or whatever and label them with the appropriate number. Then a different researcher would administer the treatment and record their observations. All they would know is the number assigned to each person. So if they find improvement in a certain group of numbers and that group proves to be the treatment group, you can have more confidence that this is a legitimate result. 
Now, if you combine all of these methods into a randomized, controlled, double-blind study, you have one of the highest levels of validity that you can have in research, whether medical or otherwise. Now, a note about this. Um, this kind of research is based on having the two separate groups. Uh, sometimes you stop a trial, okay? Uh, and usually it's because in the middle of the study, some kind of compelling evidence is coming up. Now, in the worst case, what you could find is that the treatment is causing harm. You know, <laughs> three or four of the test subjects have dropped dead after receiving this medication. And, you know, that would be a signal like, okay, stop the study. <laughs> we are not going any further with this one. Um, now, in the best case, what you might see is that the people in the treatment group are just getting better, fast, and showing tremendous improvement, blah, blah, blah. And in a case like that, you might stop the study and just start giving the treatment to everyone. It's like, okay, we, we've already got enough data to confirm this. Now, these are ethical questions, and generally speaking, most studies uh, at universities uh, in particular, they have what are called institutional review boards that are supposed to weigh in on the ethical issues involved in, in doing a study and whether it's being done properly, and so you might consult with them. Uh, even private companies usually have some people involved in making ethical decisions like that. Um, if you were being funded by the government, you could talk to the government people about, okay, we think we need to stop the study and here's why. Um, but this is one of the things that, that can happen as well. And so with that, this is Ahuka uh, for Hacker Public Radio signing off and as always reminding you to support free software. Bye-bye. <laughs>